Almonds three. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. 
but we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here, and you're probably normally we have someone in our congregation read the uh, the scripture text for the morning, and this week, uh, just in case you're wondering, that is nobody in our congregation. That is professional actor and. Uh, stage uh, actor Max McLean and he is a believer who has a ministry where he reads the Bible and you can actually purchase uh, him reading the Bible in ESV or NIV. That was the NIV translation. So for those of you who are struggling to find ways to read the Bible, I challenge you to listen to the Bible. And uh, I know we're not in the car as much with COVID, but I challenge you to put it in the rotation and listen to it. It's really changed my life. And I used to be terrible at scripture memory. Now I'm decent because I continually listen to passages over and over again. So it's, it's blessed me, and that's why we played it. I hope uh, that all of us will practice the discipline of listening to God's Word and also reading it, but, but listening to it. So good morning. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you guys at home. Uh, we had a great uh, outdoor service, and I realized that... Um, Yeah, that the sermon went a little longer than I thought, but we are good to go here. And you guys are going to hear from Romans chapter three, one of the most powerful passages. All of Romans is so good. It's so rich and it's it's powerful and it's it's filled with this deep theology, but it's also addressing an issue. It's addressing many issues. And there's definitely something going on with the Jews and the Gentiles. So the question is, why was Romans written? I I grew up kind of just thinking Romans was written, you know, just to tell one thing, to talk about how I'm saved. But as I've started studying it later on in life, I realized that there's a lot more to it. That's there. But what, why was it written and, and how does that fit into today's passage? So to start off, I'm going to start off with the age-old question, why did J.R.R. Tolkien write The Lord of the Rings? I love The Lord of the Rings. I'm a big fan. I have to admit, I was the fan who became a fan after watching the movies. I wasn't the middle schooler who walked around with the big fat books. I never... I, until I saw the movies, I didn't fall in love with them. I did go back and read the books and really enjoyed them. Um, so why did Tolkien write The Lord of the Rings? I don't know. Eric and I, were, my wife, were really excited. One day, years ago, we got this documentary. We put it in the DVD player and watched about an hour and a half of people, you know, scholars and these literary people talk about why Tolkien wrote it. Tolkien was dead at the time, but his son was still alive. And... And most of their answers were that Tolkien actually fought in World War One, and he was part of World War Two Europe, and it was it was a lot. It was written to kind of help people deal with what was going on. Another person thought it was about environmentalism, that that was the key theme of of the Lord of the Rings, and industrialization destroys the environment, which you know is, you can see that theme, and definitely in some of the writings, particularly about you know. One, a couple scenes about the trees and Isengard. And then another scholar said that Tolkien wanted to write an English mythology that was purely like British. 
because Tolkien studied mythologies. That's what he did professionally. And it was interesting. No one said anything about Tolkien's Christian faith in the whole documentary, an hour and a half. We were just kind of baffled by it. We were like, wow, um, I know that Tolkien was a Christian. So what did Tolkien say about Lord of the Rings? Here's his definition. He says, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic, he was a Roman Catholic, uh, work. And unconscious, so at first, but conscious in the revision. So he, he thought about it, and he actually inserted his faith into the writings of it, which I found fascinating that none of these people talked about it in this documentary about it, when he himself said his faith, and it's, it's describing things of his faith, putting them into this fictional story that can help people deal with stuff like what happened in World War I and World War II, like industrialization, like all, all the things that were in the documentary, but the root of why Tolkien did it was different than what they thought. And sometimes I think that happens with Romans. I think we as modern, individualistic Western people always, we, we pull parts of Romans out, and then, but we we're never always thinking about the big context. And that's to our shame because the big context of Romans is God's big plan to save people. And that's why Paul keeps going back to Abraham and he goes back to Adam and he goes back to these covenants and he keeps, you know, between chapter 1 and chapter 11, he continually goes back to the story of God and the faithfulness of God to the covenants that he made with his people. So in that light, I want us to look at just a couple uh, you know, different Bible scholars, when they write a commentary or write a study notes to Romans, they'll make an outline. So I, I just did a summary of some popular evangelical uh, Romans outlines. And one of them says that chapters 1, 1 through 17 is the introduction. Then in 1, 18 through 320 is the universal need for salvation. Then 320 to 5, chapter 5 is God's gift of salvation. Another one gives the introduction. Then it says... Um, the unrighteousness of all humankind, and then it talks about the righteousness that can only be found in God. So the first one was the universal need of salvation. This one talks about unrighteousness and righteousness. Now, they're close themes, but you see how even they can't agree on what wording to use. Then the next outline I found just said that there's an introduction, and the body is chapters 1 through 15, and it's all about grace. And this is a well-known, you know, um, scholar and he says that the main message of Romans is God is glorified in a unified missionary church humbled together under grace, which is very different than I was taught as a kid. The main message of Romans is how I'm justified, which I believe how I'm justified is clearly in Romans and is particularly dealt with in Romans 3. But like thinking about the big picture of Romans and then putting Romans chapter 3 in the place of the big picture will help us really unpack it, especially as we move forward in this series. The next outline I saw is, is, says that the introduction is in chapter 1. The thesis is 1, 16 and 17, where some people think the thesis is Romans 1, 1 through 4. Some people think the thesis is 1, 16 and 17. One people, some people think the thesis is both. So there's even, you know, because this is a complicated letter and we're, we're trying to unpack it 1,900 years later in all its richness. Um, the outline that we're going to look at this morning that I'm going to kind of base the sermon on um, is one where he actually thinks that Romans 1, 4 through 25 is about the faithfulness of God. 
and every all scholars would agree that that's that that is showing that God is faithful against sinful, rebellious people. And then that same um, that same thing will have uh, it'll say what the next slide. It, it says in, in Romans 1, 1 through 18 and 3 through 20, the challenge for God's righteousness. Gentiles and Jews alike are under God's wrath, guilty of idolatry and wickedness. So it talks about the challenge of God's righteousness. How can a holy, righteous God accept rebellious people without continuing in his righteousness and his holiness? How can, if, if a law is established and you violate the law, you're a bad judge when you don't enforce the law. So how can a holy God, in his righteousness, allow these Jews and Gentiles, the people who had the law and the people who just had the written law on their hearts, like we talked about last week, stand before a holy God? And so you see there's these various outlines, and most scholars um, have to admit that Romans, the main point of Romans, Paul's main point that he says himself and this comes in the end of Romans in, in chapters 14 and 15, is that he's going to visit Spain and he's raising money and he wants to encourage the Roman church in their, what they're doing and then he wants to encourage them to send him on to Spain to give him money and resources so that he can keep going in spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And then also there's this, this thing that we, this section of, of Romans 14 where it talks about weak and strong in the faith and that there's almost two factions in the Roman house churches. And Paul's dealing with that. And so 1 through 11 are, and what really 1 through 13 and 14 are how does, Paul's answering the questions that they have by giving us this beautiful long theological discourse. And I think Tolkien gives us this beautiful, long story that he spends a lot of time on to help us process evil in the world, to help us process a lot of Christian themes. That's why he calls it a, a Christian work. He calls it a Catholic work because he's Catholic. And I believe Paul, because he's dealing with this weak and strong issue that we find in 14, and that, that carries over into kind of a Jew and Gentile theme. How much of the Old Testament do they need to hold on to? Do they, can they just scrap it? Would that be a good idea? And, that, and that's why he keeps talking about how the gospel, the good news is Jews and Gentiles. And through chapter 1 through chapter 11, the theme continually shows up. So in light of learning about our own justification, in light of learning who we are, we're also learning about God's plan to save people. And we have to look at the covenants God makes with Adam and the covenants he makes with Abraham and, and the law, of the covenant he makes with Moses and the covenant he makes with David and the prophets and the new covenant that he promises in the prophets. So that's the backdrop of where we are. And I, I told you guys last week in this section, the section starts off in, uh, in verse 118 and it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what is the wrath of God? And I, I, I like Nintendo games. I like Mario and Zelda. But in Mario, anybody ever played a Mario game? There's, there's like the main, there's like, you go along, then there's these mini bosses and you got to hit them three times. Then there's like a main boss of the level and then there's Bowser at the end. And when you fight these bosses, it's like you hit them the first time and then whatever their thing is, if they're electric, they're fire electricity at you. If, they, if smoke comes out of their nose and they're like, I was angry, but now I'm really angry. And then you hit them again and now like, I'm really, really angry. And I think sometimes we look at God like that. We think of God as a rage, filled with rage. 
When he says wrath, we think of wrath as uncontrolled rage. Well, that goes completely against God's character. God is not Bowser. He's not filled with rage because Mario's jumping on him. We're not, like when we, when we disobey God, he's, that's not what his, his, his anger is. So what is God's wrath? So I could give you my definition, but I love this definition by John Stott using Romans 1 as a reference. John Stott is a theologian and pastor who passed away about a couple years ago. And in, later in life, he wrote this. And I think he can teach us a lot in this. And I'm going to actually post this definition on the realm. So we can just kind of see what is, what is God's wrath? What is this anger? And let's let Stott help us define it. How can anger, they ask, this is talking about a modern person who struggles with God's wrath. How can anger, they ask, which Jesus' Sermon on the Mount equates with murder in Matthew 5, and which Paul identifies as a manifestation of our sinful human nature in Galatians 5, 19 and 20, possibly be attributed to the all-holy God? So that's the struggle of the modern person. How could rage and anger be attributed to God? The wrath of God is almost totally different than human anger. It does not mean God loses his temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His wrath is holy, hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment upon it. In general, the wrath of God is directed against evil alone. We get angry when our pride has been wounded, but there is no personal There's nothing personal in the anger of God. He's not like us. Nothing arouses it except evil, and evil always does. God's wrath is directed not against, uh, sorry, not against godlessness and wickedness in a vacuum, but against godlessness and wickedness of those people who, and this is a quote from Romans 2, suppress the truth by their wickedness. They have decided to live for themselves rather than God and others, and therefore they deliberately stifle any truth that challenges their self-centeredness. God's wrath will be revealed in the future judgment of the last day. And this shows up in the Old Testament, and it shows up throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, and it shows up in Jesus himself. There is a judgment coming. And there is a present disclosure of it in the public administration of justice. So Paul is making this case in Romans. However, there is another kind of present disclosure of the anger of God being revealed from heaven. And that's, the, that's what Paul's directly addressing in Romans 1. God abandons stubborn, sinful sin, sinners, stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness. And the resulting process of moral and spiritual degeneration is to be understood as a judicial act of God. In summary, God's wrath is his settled and perfectly righteous antagonism to evil. It is directed against people who have some knowledge of God's truth, though the created order, through the created order, but deliberately suppress it in order to pursue their own self-centered path. And it is already being revealed in the moral and social corruption that Paul saw in much of the Greco-Roman world and of his day, and we can see it in the permissive societies of our day, end quote. So that's a good, that's the wrath of God, according to Romans 1. We are under this wrath. We are all guilty. Last week we looked at, what's the problem? The problem is evil. That's why the wrath is coming. What, who's part of the problem? We all are. What's God's response to the problem? Kindness. That allows it, and forbearance, allowing us to turn to him. Repentance. Allowing us to repent. What's our proper response? Repent. 
So we looked at this um, last week, this idolatry and dehumanized behavior that results in God's wrath, and we looked at that God's judgment leaves no room for the moral person. And then we get to the next section, and it talks about, so the, the Jewish people, well, well, they're like, well, I'm not the evil pagan, and I'm not the religious moral pagan. I'm different. And then the next section we're going to look at today is uh, Israel's faithfulness and God's faith, Israel's faithlessness and God's faithfulness. And then in 3, 9 through 20, how the law puts the Jews in the dock. Basically, they have to stand before God alongside the Gentiles. All of us in the courtroom are in the dock having to look up at God and, and account for our actions. And then the end of chapter 3 says that God's righteousness is revealed through faithfulness of, of Jesus and that there's one God, one faith in Christ alone and one people in the covenant family of Abraham. And that's what we'll look at next week. So you see why I'm giving you these outlines because I'm trying to, I don't want it to be my words. I want it to be Paul's words. I don't want to teach you Romans 3 and you're like, well, that's what Danny thinks Romans 3 means. I want us to see Paul's big flowing argument in light of the rest of the, the book of Romans, in light of the rest of redemptive history, in light of the rest of scripture, so we can start seeing where, where does this section fit in? And when he presents Christ, this is the first time, you know, he presents Christ in the end of chapter 3, in 3, 20, uh, 21 through 26. How does that fit in to the bigger picture of what Paul's talking about? So at the end of chapter 2, there's this direct challenge to the Jewish person. And I'm going to just read 2, 28 and 29. It says, For you are not a true Jew, just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, but rather is a change of heart. It literally says circumcision of the heart produced by the Spirit. And a person uh, with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. So it's this idea of circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And so what, what happens in this section is a Jew would have heard Paul's arguments going along and they would have been like, yes, the bad people are bad and they deserve God's judgment. And then the pagans who think they're good and they have religious practices, they're still wrong. They deserve God's judgment. But then like in Amos, they probably were like, but we don't deserve God's judgment. And if you read the book of Amos, God sets judgments on all the other people. And then at the end, it's like seven chapters of judgments against Israel because they're sin because they should have known better. So the Jewish person in the crowd, the, the Jewish reader of this might think, well, I'm off the hook. And Paul's like, no, the circumcision of the heart is something that I've talked, that God has talked about from the beginning. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, it brings up the idea that our hearts must be circumcised. In the law itself, it says circumcision isn't enough, that you need to circumcise your heart. There needs to be a transformation from within. In Deuteronomy 6, this is the end of the law. This is when God gives it to Moses and he gives it to the people and they're going to go out and be his people. And he says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And then at the end of that section, in verse 10, it says, if you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that were written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So from the beginning, they should have known this idea of, of loving God with your heart is part of God's plan. The circumcision of the heart was there in the law itself. 
In Jeremiah 31, 30 to 34, 33 to 34, this is a passage all of us should have, should be familiar with because this is the promise of the new covenant. This is the covenant that we're under, the covenant that, that saves us that in Christ. It says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Hebrews uh, quotes this, the author of Hebrews. Um, why? Because this is who we are. So to Paul's Jewish reader, he has to remind them to the hearer that this idea of a transformed heart is not something that just comes after Pentecost. You know, Jesus just doesn't bring it up out of the air. It was always there. And that salvation is obtained, obtained through the covenant comes from a changed heart, a circumcised heart produced by the Spirit. And at some point, some of you might be, at this point, some of you might be like, okay, why does, I thought Romans 3 really was just about justification. Why does Paul keep bringing up this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles? Why does he keep going back and forth? Um, and like I mentioned earlier, maybe there's about, there's some house churches in Rome, maybe four to six, maybe more. Uh, we just don't know. Um, Jews had to be, were expelled from the city for about, maybe about a 10 year period. And this is after that, so some Jews have come back. And there's this conflict of weak and strong believers. There's a conflict of how much of the Old Testament do we need to cling to? How are we saved? What favor do Jews have over Gentile Christians? Maybe the Jews were, came back and they're like, hey, remember, give us the best seat because we're the, we're the chosen ones. And, but there are, Paul's, Paul's clarifying all this. He's giving them this grand... Narrative, and he's using the framework of the Old Testament to teach him this. Um, but we, we don't know why, exactly what the issue is, but we know that Paul has to, he, he feels the need to talk about it. And the beautiful thing is we get, we get Romans in Paul's... He, he poured over this for hours. This letter was not written like hastily in the night. Like the way it's written, it's so well written. Paul really, really thought through this before he sent it to them. He had professional editors. He had... Greek, you know, he, it wasn't just Paul writing in haste. This letter was, is so well crafted that we know that Paul wanted it to be special. And we get it. But we get it in the context of why it was written to them. And there's something about this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles and understanding who we really are and, and what is God's covenant promise and faithfulness from the beginning. It goes on and, and chapter 3 starts off. It says, what advantage there is there for being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And he says, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So God chose Abraham. Nobody. He wasn't a great king. He didn't have an empire. He had nothing. God chose a family and blessed him and says, I will make you great. And by the time of David and Solomon, they were great. And even at the time of the Roman Empire, they still have a temple. They still have the time of Jesus. They st in the, when Paul's writing this, they still have something. God's promise was fulfilled in Abraham. Then, then Paul goes on. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify the God's? 
Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let it, God be true and every human being be a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, this passage is a fascinating passage. Paul uses this to defend God as judge. There are many passages in the Old Testament where God is mentioned as judge. Many. But this passage is from Psalm 51, the psalm where David confesses his sin and cries out to God after committing adultery with Bathsheba. And I believe that Paul intentionally uses this passage right here to show them. Every one of them would have thought, well, David's our main guy. He's our main, main, he's the greatest Jew who ever lived in their eyes. And he had to say this statement because David needed God's grace. He knew he could not follow the law. He actually writes this as he violated the Ten Commandments. He coveted. He committed adultery. So I believe Paul puts it there so that any Jewish hero would be like, it's not the law, but it's the law that requires faith. And even David had to go to that. And we'll look at how Abraham even did that. Abraham is saved by faith. We'll look at that next week. So we think, oh, in the Old Testament, they were saved by following the law. In the New Testament, we're saved by faith. But actually, Paul's trying to show that they were always saved by faith. And he'll continue that argument in the rest of Romans. And then we get to this section in, in verse, chapter 3, verse 29. I mean, verse 9 through 20 where it talks about the law puts the Jews alongside the Gentiles on the dock. All of us are guilty. And it quotes the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. All have turned away. Their throats are an open grave. That's disgusting. <laughs> you know, an open grave with a stanky body. That's what our throats are like. You know, that's, that's what it's talking about. Like, that's a vivid, you know, the poison of vipers is on their lips. This is vivid imagery to describe the human condition for Jews and Gentiles alike. Every one of these quotes, Paul's either quoting from Psalms, he quotes, these are about six Psalms he quotes, lines from Psalms, or one's from Ecclesiastes and one's from Isaiah. He's saying throughout the Old Testament, all of us are guilty and everybody is guilty. And we're all stand, we all stand before God on trial and God's like guilty. There's no one who deserves to not be destroyed, like I talked about last week. The charge is guilty for everyone. Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin, the passage says. So who deserves to be spared from the present and coming judgment? The moral people? The religious people? The Jew who claims they follow all the law, even though we, they know in their heart they don't? Who deserves to be spared? from the judgment. No one does. We are all guilty. And that's why the good news is good news. Because we should have been destroyed. We're all guilty. But God is faithful. That's why it's good news. God is faithful not to us, but he's faithful to his covenant. And he's faithful to the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ, who in his faithfulness, we put our faith. It's a lot of faithfulnesses, right? You can go back and listen to that one again if you want to catch it. I think I actually did that right. So we get to the heart of the, you know, we get to the next section. So he's done talking about the judgment. It's done. We deserve judgment. 
118 through 320. We deserve judgment. Then we get to this next section. God's faithfulness to the covenant. And we'll look at it today and then into next week. And in, in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, it says this. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So you see how Paul keeps going back to the Old Testament. Like as he's presenting the gospel, he's presenting it in light of Abraham and the prophets. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did, not, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So you see how my faith, faithfulness, he's like just, justified, righteousness, righteousness, there's a lot going on here. That's why I said this is a well-crafted document. Paul was inspired by the Spirit, but he definitely edited it over and over and over again, like Tolkien edited Lord of the Rings, because Paul wanted to make sure that all the hearers of this, in the original context, and even us years later, I know in God's providence this is true, that we could get this, that our faith is in the faithfulness of Christ. Our faith is, we're justified because of our faith in Jesus, because of the work of Jesus, because of God's covenant faithfulness. So you th see how all these things are weaved together? So for the Jewish person, how would they have heard it? They would have realized, probably because he quotes David, and he's, he's talking about Moses. He, in this section, he doesn't bring up Adam. Paul brings up Adam later, because Adam's kind of for everybody. But in this section, we, we're missing it. But Paul's talking about Abraham, Moses, David and the priests. All those things are here. And a Jewish reader would catch them all. Like if I threw out some things about baseball or something, and, you know, and you're a baseball fan, and I threw out some names, the baseball fans in the audience would catch every one of them. The non-baseball fans might only catch the big name, Babe Ruth or something. Like the Jewish person's going to see this. So for them, how could God's justice and his covenant justice, how does it all come together in Christ? And I get this from some other scholars, but it's really that Jesus becomes the ultimate Jew. He does everything that David couldn't do, that Moses couldn't do. That's why he's called the Messiah, the anointed one. So to them, Jesus has to do all this to fulfill all this because that's what they were anticipating. They were waiting for this Messiah. Now, again, they thought that the Messiah would be more powerful than the Roman Empire. And so they thought he'd have swords and armies. And even James and John, when their mom asked Jesus, hey, when you establish your kingdom, can my son sit at your right and left hand? And basically they were like, can one be the commander of the army and can one be like the prime minister? That was a bold ask. Some people say she's the original tiger mom. You know, she, she was looking out for her boys, you know. But that was a bold ask. And because she thought that they were creating this earthly kingdom. But Jesus comes and Jesus does demolish the Roman Empire. The gospel gets to Rome within 20 years of his death. And there's churches there. Just the fact that this letter is written shows 
that Jesus is demolishing the Roman Empire. The fact that it can start off saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar's not Lord. And so to the Jew and the Gentile, that was an offensive statement. So you see how this, this section, so the Jews would have heard it one way. The Gentiles would have been like, well, what does this mean for me? And, it, and then Paul says in verse 25 that Christ is, is the sacrifice of atonement. And some translations say the propitiation, and there's a debate, which is a better one? Some translations say the mercy seat. And this is my little break off for those who are, you know, study the Bible and you're, you're into word studies. What is, well, how do we translate this word, hilasterion? Is it propitiation? Is it, which means that, the, that God pours out his wrath towards something and Jesus takes that? Is it this mercy seat, which is how this word is translated 21 times in the Old Testament? Same Greek word in the Greek Old Testament. So do we call it the mercy seat, the place where um, atonement takes place and Christ becomes the mercy seat? I think the book of Hebrews talks a lot about that. Or, or do we say sacrifice of atonement? And, and some scholars say that's the best definition because it's, it's covering all of it. Interesting, Jesus dies on the Passover, not the Day of Atonement. If he died on the Day of Atonement, Easter would probably be today. Because the Yom Kippur is tomorrow. <laughs> it would be the Sunday closest to Yom Kippur, I guess. Uh, but Jesus dies on the Passover. So, so there's something that happens through the death and resurrection of Jesus that does all these things, accomplishes everything. Um, so, Colin Cruz... A New Testament scholar says this, Christ's atoning sacrifice is effective in both removing God's wrath towards sinners and removing the stains of their sins. It does both. Both of these things are happening. Now, how does this exactly happen? We really don't know. We just know it happens because of God's grace. And we can read and on the cross, the shedding of blood, all the things, all the sacrifices required in the Old Testament are fulfilled and all the things that, are, that a Roman reader, a, a, a Greek reader would, would see, they're, they're like, I get it. Jesus did it for me. Paul's using lots of language. He's using court language. He's using Old Testament language. He's, he's weaving all these things together to teach them who they are in Christ. Moo says this, Douglas Moo, a, a New Testament scholar in his commentary on Romans. Paul's point is that God can maintain his righteous character, his righteousness in verse 25 and 26, even while he acts to justify sinful people, God's righteousness in verse 21 and 22, because Christ in his perpetuary sacrifice provides full satisfaction of the demands of God's impartial, invariable justice. End of quote. So how does God maintain his righteousness and covenant justice while removing us from his wrath, his judgment on sin and evil, and removing the stain of our sin while being faithful to his covenant promises he made with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets? How? Through the obedience of Jesus, the Messiah. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. This is a mystery. How it exactly works, we'll never know, but we know the results of it. And Paul will spend chapter 4 through 11 continuing to flesh this idea out. Like, what does it mean to live in Christ? And, 
keep going back to the fact of how we're saved and, and, and how we're being saved and how we will be saved at the end of the final judgment and, and, and God's plan for Jews and Gentiles. He brings it up again. Chapters 9 through 11 address all the stuff that's addressed in chapter 3 because Paul's continually to teach this church how to get it right and how to really understand who we are in Christ. So what does this mean for us? Another quote from Douglas Moo, he says, Our own justification before God rests on the solid reality of the fulfilling of God's justice in Christ was at the same time the fulfilling of this love for us. So I don't want any of us to walk away focused that this was an act of, of justice and wrath. And ultimately, it's an act of love because it's shielding people from the justice. I mean, from this wrath and bringing us freedom and redemption. It's an act of love and mercy. It's an act of grace. This is Romans 3.23. How many of you had Romans 3.23 memorized? You know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are freely justified by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And I love it that he, he has the word justified, which means to be made right with God, but he also has the word redemption, which means to be bought from slavery, to escape, to be purchased. So a Jewish reader would see the word justified and think of the atonement, and then they'd see the word redemption and think of the exodus and think this is the new exodus. They would be like, wow, so what Paul's doing is he's equating redemption that, we, that God gave our people. The Exodus is the pivotal moment in the Old Testament. It's kind of for us, it's like the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ as Christians. Like we, we go back to that. But to, to a Jewish person, the Exodus was the pivotal moment. And the Passover was kind of the celebration, remembering that. And remember, Jesus dies on the Passover. So Paul's bringing all this together and he's showing us that we're made right with God and that we're redeemed, we're bought, we're no longer slaves, but we're free. We're no longer in bondage to the self that we weren't created to be, like a fish out of water. We're, we're in the place where we need to be. This is exciting. This is good news. You guys, I don't know, Oprah's... I don't watch Oprah, but back in the day, she'd be like, you win a car, and you win a car, and you win a car. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it, it, some days, everybody in the audience would get some prize, and sometimes it was a big prize. I think there's actually a meme about that. And you win a car, and you win a car. But God looks at us, and he's like, and you're set free, and you're set free, and you're set free. This is good news. We are justified, made right with God. We are redeemed. We've been purchased. We're no longer slaves. We are free. And we're saved from the wrath because of the love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. John 3, 16 and 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen. So what is our response? Faith and worship. Faith says in verse 22, chapter 3, verse 22, the righteousness, this righteousness, the righteousness of God, not our junk, 
Not the righteousness that we could conjure us, but the righteousness of God, which we didn't deserve, which we should have been destroyed, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And some Bible scholars think that, that you should translate this, is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. But either way, it's awesome. So I titled the sermon, We Have Faith in the Faithfulness of Jesus. Because they're both true. It's all true. We get God's righteousness because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of His faithfulness, because of His obedience. And our faith in that, our belief in that, is what saves us. And it's saving us. I talked about last week, keep going back to the gospel. So that's my first response. And then the final response is worship. If, if, you're, if you owed, let's say you went to college and you, you, know, you owed $300,000 of debt for professional school or whatever, and, and someone just says, I'm canceling it. Done. Would you, what would you do at that moment? Just mope around? <laughs> yeah, thanks. You would be rejoicing. You would tell everybody. You would post it on social. We've been given everything. Let's worship. Our faith is in Christ alone. We have God's righteousness, and we get to worship Him because of all that He's given us. Let's pray. God, I thank You for each person here. I, I pray for each person at home that I know COVID's been hard, and I know that sometimes it's hard to remember the good things, the gift that You've given us in Christ, and that we have Your righteousness. And that we get you. We get you, God. And I pray that each person here just walks by faith each day and trusts you. And that we become, we're just a people overflowing with worship because of what you've done for us. We thank you that you, you made us right, that you redeemed us, and you saved us. And we give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.